0: Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. Our guests today discuss the restoration of Pell Grant funding for incarcerated students. In layman's terms, that means that as many as 700,000 adults currently behind bars will soon become eligible to receive federal funds to pursue a college education. There are some unique logistical hurdles to be addressed, but as you'll hear, a number of colleges are already serving incarcerated students and it's working well for the schools and students involved. Give these folks a listen and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. My name is Matt McLuhan, and I'm a researcher here at the firm. With me today is my colleague, Kaylee Privetier. Would you mind introducing yourself a bit, Kaylee, and telling us about the topic we're going to cover today?
1: Yes, hello, Matt. Very excited to be on Office Hours with EAB. My name is Kaylee. I am a research analyst at EAB, and I've always been interested in criminology. I was a sociology major and explored it every chance I got. So, when I wrote my blog post for EAB, I really wanted to be in that realm. And I'm here to talk about the restoration of Pell Grant funding for incarcerated students that's anticipated to happen in this upcoming July.
0: When exactly is that going to take place? Do we know? Is that early July, late July? Oh,
1: July 1st, 2023.
0: Fantastic. And and I know you wrote a blog post blog post about this topic, correct? Yes. Cool. Can we kind of start off with like the, the broad summary of like what does this mean for those students? What's happening with that Pell Grant? What does that do for them?
1: Yes, for sure. So I guess we'll just start by saying that 26 years ago, Hell, Grant funding for incarcerated students was repealed in the 1994 Violent Crime Control Act. So this actually squandered a flourishing landscape for um, incarcerated students to access higher education. So this legislation will restore that funding and now allow any school, well, I should clarify, I should allow any not-for-profit school to offer pathways to serve incarcerated students.
0: Gotcha. And why should um, our partners care about this market, right? Is this like a new student population they can tap into? What do you think the appeal
1: here is? Yes. Well, I think the the biggest appeal is 700,000 students will be eligible. That's around 50% of the incarcerated population. So this is a staggering number. Definitely generates some interest, but I also think we could talk about the civic value in the role higher education plays in serving the community. The Rand Institute has conducted studies that estimate that there is a 28% lower chance of recidivism. For students who access higher education. And I also think it's important to mention just higher education's overall goal in serving the community and facilitating successful reassimilation for these students to return as productive members of society.
0: I love that specific aspect in that way that our our partners can really kind of serve their communities and bring people back into their community. But what really jumped out at me first, there was that 700,000 number. That is a huge amount of students. And considering we have this, I I think this demographic cliff, as we called it, where undergraduate enrollments are probably going to taper off around 2025, how do you think that might impact? Is this something where institutions might be able to mitigate that demographic cliff? Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, I
1: mean... I definitely think it's an option for institutions to explore. Um, I also think that institutions should be aware that this is a slightly higher risk population. And this population has higher needs. We're talking about people who have not had formal access to higher education, most likely, um, especially not since being incarcerated. So it's definitely exciting. um, But I would just caution that institutions need to be fully aware of the population they're going to be serving.
0: Right, they need to be mindful of, of what this new student audience needs, what it looks yes. like, all those sorts of things. Um, I'm curious, what do we know about interest from those incarcerated peoples? Do we have any sense of if, if these are people who are interested in more education? You mentioned the Rand Institute. Have they done research around uh, how many people reach out for education while they're incarcerated? Who manages to obtain that?
1: Yes, yes. Um, well, this is probably the most exciting part, but there is vast interest for just education programs in general among incarcerated people. The numbers are 80% of incarcerated people report interest in education programs, and 50% are actually able to access them, and that discrepancy is largely due to financial barriers, sorry, a cat appearance, uh, financial barriers are the biggest constraint, and this includes tuition, which the Pell Grant will remedy, but also this includes things you may not think of like paper and pens and textbooks and other resources, which is another thing to note about institutions being aware of the population they're serving. The Pell Grant, yes, that will provide the tuition funding, but you you need more to succeed in school than just your tuition being covered.
0: Right. What more What more are you talking about? Is that like the, the kind of the delivery of these programs? Mm. I know you mentioned like textbooks, pencils, pencils, and papers, and things of that nature, but are there other support systems you're talking about here that these students might need that would be outside the typical for what we'd expect?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, definitely the material support, but also the emotional support. As I mentioned before, this is a population that oh, just hasn't accessed higher education doesn't necessarily have that experience. So particularly this population needs resources and peer support mentorship programs. Um, I think you may have been hinting at this in terms of modality of programming. We can sort of dive into that later if you want, but um, I will flag right off the bat that given COVID and given the emergence of online programs, it's definitely very tempting to immediately think that online is the way to go. And I think, online is a possibility. I think you online programs must exist in conjunction with offering this more emotional support and just facilitating a community. I think we all experienced a bit of the isolation that online brings and for persistence, particularly with this population, it's so important to make sure you're building that community.
0: Yeah, you kind of fit the words out of my mouth. I was right on the cusp of thinking, okay, (laughs) Just went through the pandemic all of these institutions that we've partnered with that room we work with figured out how to get their online programs or how to get their undergraduate programs working for online um and i was thinking this is like that clear one-to-one but it sounds mm-hmm. like that might not be the best way for these students to be served like they might need more of that community touch point mm-hmm. um i kind of think of the nature of of an incarcerated person right they, they likely may not have finished high school or that's mm-hmm. the highest level of education they've had um, And I think of being an independent learner, there may not be the most successful way there. Uh, Mm -hmm. I do wanna move toward though, we were talking about these students, their interest, how many of these students kind of reach out or potential students reach out for education programs. Do we have a sense of how this has been communicated to incarcerated peoples? Do we think they'd be aware of it? Are prisons communicating this to the incarcerated population? Or is this something where institutions cannot take it on themselves to communicate communicate to them?
1: That's an interesting question. I'm definitely, I'm not entirely sure how incarcerated people have been communicated this information. My gut is leaning towards, I definitely think institutions should do, should play a role in communicating with incarcerated people and just making them aware of programming or plans to launch programming. That definitely seems like the right direction. Um, so I'm really, I'm really not sure. Maybe that's something we could research more for later.
0: <laughs> I think that's also something helpful for our partners too. If we're not sure of it, it might be the, the first step for them is to reach out to like that local correction system or, or criminal justice system and figure out, is there an opportunity for us to work with you? How many students or how many incarcerated people do you have who are interested in education? I feel like that might be like that, that first thing for them to do to see mm-hmm. if they can really get this up and running. Does that seem right to you as well?
1: Yeah, no, I definitely agree, and I just also want to note that this legislation, which we can talk more of the nitty gritty in a bit, but this legislation is supposed to take effect July first. So we're kind of on the the, the frontier of you know Pell grant eligibility. Like now is the time to act. No one has really done anything yet. Like we're, it's all happening in the future, so we're not entirely sure how people will approach this, or we're not entirely sure how institutions will create programs to serve these students, but this is definitely the time to be thinking about that and just kind of getting ahead.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I want to I go back to that legislation you're talking about. I read through your blog before we got on here um, and learned some things myself. I, I, <laughs> I looked into, I think it was last year in July, July 2022, where they expanded the Pell Grant opportunities to, I think it was like 200 institutions or something yes. like that. How does this change that? right? Does this open up yeah. to all of these institutions? What happened with those first two hundred? do you do you have any sense of like what the historical presidency or what's changing this year?
1: Yes, for sure. So this is all part of the FAFSA Simplification Act, which, as I said before, overturns the ban on Grant eligibility for incarcerated people and good good reading good research before the podcast but yes so starting in like 2020 to 2022 there was the second chance pell initiative and this was experimental funding for 200 institutions nationwide to offer programming to incarcerated students and it's just oh no did matt freeze oh we're good he was just very he was very still for a second um and this was all part of the momentum towards eventually repealing the ban on pell grant funding Um, And so now that the Pell Grant funding has been restored, we will see all public, uh, sorry, not public, all institutions that are not for profit have the potential to offer programming to incarcerated students. The only um, constituents are the program needs to be approved by the U.S. Department of Education. And this is just to protect these students from any sort of predatory programs that offer Um, fraudulent credits or something like that. Uh, But otherwise, it is pretty simple. And then in terms of incarcerated people, all incarcerated people who have a bachelor, sorry, have a high school diploma and meet the financial requirements can qualify for Pell Grant funding. The um, Pell Grant funding is sentence blind, meaning that any length sentence length or conviction, you can still be eligible. And just to reiterate, um, incarcerated people are on average much less educated than the general public. So we're talking about a vast number of people who are eligible for the Pell Grant and. Incarcerated people also earn 41% less than the average American of similar ages at the time of incarceration. So that's another reason why that offering funding to access education could really be a big game changer.
0: I do want to clarify one thing there. You mentioned the like prerequisite for getting that Pell Grant funding. I understand that the financial need is part of it. You mentioned the high school diploma. Would people who just got a GED, maybe they didn't finish high school, they became incarcerated, finished their GED while they were incarcerated, would they be eligible for this as well? Or is this distinctly people who have a high school diploma from
1: a different high school? Well, my understanding is that a GED is is largely equivalent to a high school d- diploma. So I would assume so. And Yeah, I would assume so. Matt, you might also be able to answer your own question there. (laughs) I'm kind of
0: intuiting that that would qualify. I don't see why that wouldn't benefit um, the the Pell Grant there. I also, with that 700,000 number, I have to imagine that that scales to people with a GED. Um, So maybe I have answered my own question, but this this may (laughs) all be be worth clarifying
1: for us. Yeah, for sure. Uh,
0: I did want to come back to kind of the the different programs they can offer. We talked a little bit about like that online offering and that that's maybe not the right idea there. Um, And then we just covered kind of the background of a lot of these incarcerated people. They likely haven't finished education beyond high school. Uh, But going back to that, like the ease of integration for programs, one of the things I think would be on top of our partners' minds, and it comes to me as someone who focuses on adult learner education, is certificate and master's programs. Those were already online, like prior to the pandemic, they were kind of the first, like most accessible, most flexible programs. And that seems to me kind of easy integration. Does that seem like something our partners should be targeting or should we really be just be looking at the bachelor's?
1: That's a, that's a fair question for sure. But to reiterate, um, we're talking about a population that is not even college educated. So the bachelor's degree, sorry, the master's degree is a little bit out of scope for now. Maybe that could change, but for now, I think we're really trying to target helping incarcerated students get that bachelor's degree.
0: Gotcha. Let's, let's dig a little more into that too, knowing that like we, we already talked about online is really not the way to go for this. What do you think would be those like critical touch points? And we can kind of just speculate on this as people who work in higher education. Mm-hmm. What do you think would be those critical things that those students need, those incarcerated people need to have finished programs, right? Make sure that there's no attrition through this. They finish the full program. What do you think would be different from a traditional face-to-face program or or what we'd expect for easy online integration? What do you think those resources would be? I I can kind of start off too. Yeah, start off. I would think probably like wanting face-to-face with faculty, right? Kind of that sense of, of community, having someone that you can talk to specifically, those things seem like they'd be important to me. Um, I mean, I know even like when I did my undergrad, I liked having small classes and getting to meet my teachers. I feel like that would be particularly important for people who feel like they've probably been disadvantaged by their community, uh, or just don't feel like they're a part of their community anymore that they've been incarcerated. That's the one that sticks out to me is kind of that face-to-face time. Is there anything else that you're thinking of?
1: Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think just as important as the academic support and the academic face-to-face would also just be the the mentorship um, that goes for academic mentorship, but also just assimilation mentorship and help, you know, returning to society.
0: I do want to dig a little more into the sense of the, the things that they would need that face-to-face time. I almost talked myself into a question of my own. Do we think we need to have like professors visit prisons? Would they need to kind of go meet the these incarcerated students where they're at? Do we have any sense of what that looks like yet? Did the Department of Education give us any sense of, of what's what that's looked like for the, I guess, those like 200 schools that already got the experimental funding?
1: Yeah, well, I can definitely talk about a few of them because I did profile three in my blog post. So I can get into that. Um, There is research that supports the face-to-face model for sure. Um, That is various think tanks that cover higher education in incarcerated spaces, really emphasize just the importance of that and also how to make prison space accommodating to higher education. However, I think it's also worth noting that that may not be the reality just given the pervasiveness of online learning and it is you know online learning does have this going for it it can really expand access to to um, incarcerated people across the nation so I'm not going to say right off the bat that online learning is a never never okay or never the way to go but I do think it's really important that there is that um, emotional and supportive component so Launching into a few examples, the first example I'll highlight is an online program and that's Ashland University and that's Ashland University's Correctional Education Program. So this is the longest operating program in the U.S. It's distributed, or sorry, bestowed, I believe, 2,000 different degrees, or sorry, it's bestowed 2,000 degrees. Not sure if they're different, but 2,000 degrees, which is really cool. And this is an online program. It's individualized, just given that um, in given that incarcerated people can do the program at their own pace and it's also potentially customizable to each correctional facility. So that's cool. There is some benefit there um, and it's also been able to serve a lot of people, which is also very cool. Um, Moving on to a different I want to pause
0: you before we jump into the next one. Yes, yes, for sure. Um, Kind of going back since they did do the online thing, which we've kind of talked about not being the best option. Yeah, um, But they still managed to kind of like build that community. Do we know, and you may not have the answer to this, but we may just look into this after the fact. Do, how did they deliver those courses? Was it maybe like online with like a video proctor, kind of like a Zoom thing where people got to watch a lecture? Do we know how it was delivered? Like what did that online yes. look like?
1: So my understanding is it was delivered through tablets that were distributed mm-hmm. to, I believe it was, it was at least 12 states, it could have been more honestly, but um, a lot of states and partnered with a lot of different correctional facilities. And I'm not entirely sure if it was synchronous versus asynchronous. My instinct is asynchronous, just given that um, a lot of the, the lessons and lectures were preloaded onto the tablets. I would have to research more into the nitty gritty of how this program was delivered. And hopefully that answers your question.
0: No, that does. And I, I think like for our partners, what that does for me or what I, I feel like that communicates to them, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. They need to reach out to those correctional systems and figure mm-hmm. out what is the way that we pilot this? Do we need to bring a professor to a prison or can we do kind of the, the talking head on a tablet that talks at a group uh, but does it live or are pre-recorded sessions? And it sounds like the way to figure that out really is talking to those correctional systems first and not kind of just saying, how do we bring programs we already have to this institution as far as looking at what is the way this is going to work with that prison and then going back to your portfolio. Uh, Totally agree. I loved getting into Ashland a little bit. Let's talk about a couple more of the, the examples you have of who've done this successfully.
1: Yes. So the next example I'll talk about is Portland State University, and this is their prison and education program pretty uh, <laughs> concise title and this is this program the intent is for students to matriculate directly to Portland State University and graduate upon release so kind of not a sentence blind situation where students will start classes in while they're incarcerated and then upon release will transfer and one really cool thing about this program to sort of, as I have mentioned many, many times so far, this program is really good about offering resources in terms of like peer groups and peer support and also just um, different like le- levels of counseling, both academically and just for um, re- reintegration purposes. So that's very cool. And this is the first program in the state of Oregon to serve incarcerated women. So again, kudos to Portland State University.
0: I'm curious now, you mentioned for the Portland State program that they matriculate directly to Portland State. I don't think we touched on how that worked for Ashland. Were they able Mm -hmm. to transfer after they finished the Ashland program? Do they have to go back to Ashland after they've been released from incarceration? Um, Do we have the answer to that?
1: Yes. Well, I would say... I don't have the answer directly, um, but from what my understanding of the differences in these programs is Ashland University's program just reaches so many more students because it's It's going, yeah, it's so flexible. And with the um, Portland State University program, The people that are eligible are really people that are sort of towards the end of their sentence. So that is a potential downside. But again, like this program would definitely be such a game changer for students that are eligible to participate.
0: Right. And I see kind of that almost gives us like two different ways to interpret this for our partners. One where you could be kind of more of that Ashland where that you have that sort of universal Service right where you you can go to kind of any prison system. The credits can go elsewhere after the fact. You don't need to finish it all at Ashland, or you can do something more like Portland State, where you're serving a very specific audience. Like we're going to target. a specific demographic of people of color um, or specific gender orientation. And that seems like what Portland State did. So I think that's helpful for our partners to think of, okay, are we a really mission-driven institution? Is there a particular demographic we wanna serve? Maybe for HBCUs, right? That might be black incarcerated people um, or our other like Latinx serving partners that might be the same thing where they wanna keep with kind of what their mission already looks at. Or you could have sort of those broader schools, right, the really big ones, um, those like regional publics could look at doing more what Ashland has done, because they may have the resources to serve that wider student audience. Uh, But I think you said you had one more example, and I compare and can trust that. Yes,
1: (laughs) so one more example to throw into the mix is the, um, is Princeton University's prison teaching initiative this was founded in 1994 right during the initial repeal of Pell grant funding for incarcerated people and this is sort of a um, a band of new jersey colleges and universities and community colleges that work together to serve seven different correctional facilities in new jersey this program is 150 volunteers that teach. This includes grad students and fellows and professors and just community members. And the program has been able to serve 250 incarcerated students. Um, and just to con- contrast, especially with Portland State University, this program, you incarcerated students won't graduate with a Princeton degree. It's more of an initiative that combines and pulls resources from a bunch of different colleges and universities.
0: Gotcha. Okay. I, I like that idea, too, or like that example kind of in contrast where you can sort of think about like the different university systems, right, where it doesn't need to be you as one institution. You can kind of bring a couple together. I understand with like Princeton, they're the flagship part of it, and I'm sure that's mm-hmm. that's probably helpful in some of their marketing and the way to appeal to those criminal justice systems of this is helmed by Princeton. Uh, mm-hmm. but. I think for other like less nationally prominent institutions, that's something helpful where they could partner with somebody else who maybe has a bigger name brand and still benefit from this Pell grant funding that would ultimately come back to them. Um, I'm really happy with like going through those examples. I think that actualized this a lot for our partners and kind of makes it real in terms of how does this look, what does success look like in this space and that there's not just one right way of doing it. There's a whole myriad of ways you can kind of go through this, whether or not you're going to serve a specific sector of people, you're going to kind of be that, Let's do everything or, or a specific geography, kind of like Princeton. Uh, but we talked about earlier how 80% of incarcerated people are interested in education, but only 50% of them manage to obtain that education. Mm-hmm. That that kind of provokes some worry for me. Do we think that'll close this gap? Do you think this is something where that could that can fix that problem, or might this permeate through there?
1: Mm-hmm. I guess there's there's no way to know quite yet but I really hope so. Um I really hope that overturning this legislation motivates um motivates institutions to at least look into creating ways. I also think it's worth saying that in addition to the benefit for incarcerated students which cannot be overstated and you know I think we've dedicated a lot of time in this podcast to demonstrate that. I also think this would be a benef- beneficial initiative for universities um, in addition to, you know, mission-driven type where I also think this creates a lot of research opportunities for universities. This really, oh, were you? No, <laughs> yeah, I just like that
0: idea. Keep going, keep going. Okay,
1: sorry. Yes, research opportunities for sure. I also think it contributes to an inclusive environment that I think higher education really stands for. And I think it prepares typical academic students to navigate a morally complex world, which is the world we live in. And I think part of the purpose of higher education is to prepare people for the world.
0: Yeah, I love that answer. I do. I agree. Like higher education is here, right, to serve our whole community, prepare people to be back into the world or to go into the world, right? Mm-hmm. You kind of. We think of the traditional undergraduate student who's that maybe 17 or 18 year old who has the, the world in front of them, right? And they're learning who they are as they go through their undergraduate experience. And I wonder if these incarcerated people kind of have that similar experience of self-discovery, figuring out what you want to do in the world, how you can give back after these institutions have given back to you. Um, I also kind of want to tap on uh, one of my own personal experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, in Virginia, they restored the the voting rights to people who've been convicted of felonies. And I remember getting to interact with people. I was part of like kind of that, that dispersion campaign um, and how that made people really feel whole, right? Like they' were back in part of their community, they really feel like they got to contribute again. This seems like a similar opportunity to me, where whereas that was Virginia state government. This seems like an area where higher education can kind of tap in and say, we're here to make the community better. We want to get you back into the community. We want to make you part of your community again. We want to make you feel whole. And especially in states like Virginia, where they get the voting rights back, they almost kind of coalesce there where we're making people whole again, right? And we're using those tools of higher education to really get them. Um, back into their community and fully integrated there. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I just kind of want to tap on that for especially our our very mission-driven institutions. This seems like an opportunity for them to kind of live that mission out and really display how they're bringing their community back. They're building that community, not just for the people already at their institution, but these incarcerated as well.
1: Matt, that was was beautifully (laughs) put. And I could not agree more. I definitely think that the purpose of a justice system is to should be humanizing, and it should have the goal of returning people to society. And I think higher education, higher education institutions can play a really big role in that.
0: I'm now going to sl- slip or switch my angle um, to a little more devil's advocate, and we're talking about <laughs> how it's get in here, the opportunity for them. What if this legislation doesn't go through no, mm-hmm. Congress isn't always completely reliable on getting bills across the board that they've been talking about. We're again facing this, this budget passing thing again, where we're going to be having both sides kind of competing with each other. Is there a chance this would stop mm-hmm. out? Is there a chance it would get delayed?
1: I definitely think that skepticism is warranted for sure. Um, I do think that all signs point for this legislation being successfully passed. We talked a bit about the um, the Second Chance Pell initiatives in the last few years, which I think is just part of the momentum building. I also think that this legis- this bill in particular is unique because it has a lot of bipartisan support, which is definitely key for getting things across. And um, there's also a pretty strong economic argument. The Rand Institute has concluded that investing $1 in higher education saves taxpayers 4 to $5. So where we're at now it's looking it's looking good obviously skepticism is is warranted but i would say that now is the time to prepare for to prepare at least investigate serving this population
0: yeah, so it sounds like our partners really should plan on this happening versus the opposite angle. Um, and I, I do, I, I heard that underlying kind of theme there, the fiscal aspect of it, right? I, as a taxpayer, I certainly <laughs> like that my money will go further if this program goes through. Um, and I think that appeals to both sides of the aisle for us. So I think, fingers crossed, this seems like something <laughs> we can... I don't want to say bank on, but it's more likely than not to occur. And it seems to, it would behoove our institutions to instead plan for this to happen as opposed to ride the skepticism and think that Congress might stop it out. Uh, I'm curious, is there anything else that we want to touch on? Is there anything else in this this, whole diagram we've gone through of what this toll grant um, institution means or reinstitution means and everything that's happening here that you want to touch on? Ooh,
1: this is the moment. I think we, I think we covered a lot. I guess the one, the one thing I'll, I'll flag, I've sort of already mentioned this, but it was very, you know, it was very exciting and interesting to research this topic. And I'm just very personally passionate about expanding education opportunities in this country in general. And I think this is a big, um, this is a big blind spot for people who are undereducated. And I just can't stress enough that I think this is the time to start investing in these pathways. And I think this could be something that makes a huge difference for um, in in our country that struggles with incarceration.
0: Awesome. I love hearing that. And I, I, I love the idea that this kind of behooves institutions in two ways, right? You get that Pell Grant funding, that's more funding for your
1: institution,
0: for research endeavors, like you talked about, or other things to kind of empower your your, your school to do better. Um, and then on the flip side, you're already doing right by your community. You're going to serve these people. Um, I think that's all like a great thing for them to keep at the forefront of their mind. And I've really enjoyed going to talk about this, but we're just about out of time. Um, But before we close off, I do want to leave our listeners with what we feel like are probably those definitive next steps uh, to like really get this ball rolling. How do you start planning before July gets here? And to me, those seem to be first contact their local prison and criminal justice systems and figure out, okay, who can we work with? What kind of education opportunities do you want? have what is the way that we can help serve you and your incarcerated population um maybe a step before that might be going to the u.s department of education and getting that program approved making sure you have something that you can deliver here i know there is that that kind of the angle you talked about whether u.s department of education needs to pass on these programs so predatory we're not doing that kind of degree mill thing here for these, these students who would already sort of be disenfranchised from their communities um and then finally what I would think, especially from being in the adult learner space, is looking to your bachelor's level degree completion programs. Those are things that are much more flexible already. You can kind of mishmash different ideas together. It doesn't need to be a definitive degree. I think those are the three things I would take away from here is contact the U.S. Department of Education, get your program approved, contact your local criminal and correctional system, um, and then look at those bachelor's level degree completion programs. Does that sound right to you, Kaylee?
1: Yes. Whoa. Yes, Matt. You crushed it.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks again for sharing your time with us today, Kaylee. Um, I was so happy to talk about this, and I love to get to learn a little bit more and pick your brain about it. I'm sure we could talk about all the theories of ways to implement this, Um, but like I mentioned, we're about at time, and now we've we've given our partners those first steps, so I'm going to go ahead and close this out here. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, Matt.
0: Thanks, Kaylee, and thank you for attending EAP Office Hours. We'll be with you next time. Thank you for listening. Please join us next week when we discuss whether chat, GPT, and artificial intelligence will spell the doom of higher education or maybe change it for the better. Until next week, thank you for your time.